Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In one of his most popular works, C.S. Lewis talks about the inevitable divorce between good and evil. A comforting philosophical notion that allows adherents to be right or to be able to choose the winning side, as the sons of men often and arrogantly boast, to be on the right side of history. But what if there are no winning sides? What if, as Jesus said, no one is good? In 2 Corinthians, St. Paul also talks about a divorce not between good and evil, but between what is perishable and what is imperishable. Richard and I continue our discussion of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 128 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This past week, a parishioner who is also a blogger on the Ephesus School wrote a great article about parenting and how it relates to the study of Scripture. And she drew upon her time in the military and the importance of following orders in the military and how following the instruction can save you even if the person giving the instruction is a hypocrite, which is the point that's made in scripture over and over again, most explicitly with respect to the metaphor of military in the exchange between Jesus and the centurion in the gospels. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is coming to the church and scolding them for examining and questioning his motives in chapter one about his travels. That's where this whole discussion began. They were unhappy with Paul's decisions and were therefore questioning everything. And what he's been doing is appealing to the instruction, the order, the command that he received from God the Father through Jesus Christ. All the Corinthians are having a conference and say, you know, I don't know if we think what Paul is doing is right. Well, kind of what he's doing is right is okay, but I'm not sure because everyone really thinks that he's a lousy guy. Maybe he's pushing things too far and he's just doing this all for himself. Following him isn't such a great idea, or maybe we should have a discussion with him to tone it down a little bit. And Paul's making the argument saying, no, 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 I'm not being a loud mouth. It's not about my ego. It's only about, as you said, Father, following the teaching. And the teaching has put me in these situations The only way I'm going to know whether I should listen to your opinion or not is if I can actually see in your actions that you're following the teaching that I've been following, that I've been trying to convey to you. Once I can see that's happening, then maybe we can have a discussion. I don't know about that, but 
maybe then I would have some faith that something correct is firing in your brain. But right now, all I'm seeing is that you're having discussions and arguing because you seem to not like suffering. You seem to not like being mistreated or being looked down upon by other people. So let me just tell you how and why the teaching has put me in precisely the situation I'm in right now. It's tempting, hearing what you just said, to say, well, in Paul's case, he can talk this way, Father Mark, because he's a saint, because he's such a great guy. But Paul is not a great guy. This is very important to remember. Paul was a persecutor of the church of God, an enemy of Jesus Christ. Paul held the garments when they executed the proto-martyr Stephen. Paul has done lots of monstrous things, but yet you still have to listen to him. Why? That's the question. That's what's at stake. Can you hear the gospel preached by your enemy and submit to it? Because that's the daily test in life. We've covered this over and over again in this podcast. But I think it bears repeating because it gets to the heart of the chief sin in Scripture, which is self-righteousness. Because Scripture isn't trying to convince you of the folly of self-righteousness. It is trying to dynamite your self-righteousness. Because if you can't understand the importance of obeying the instruction of God on the lips of a hypocrite who is your persecutor, you will never understand what Paul is going to say later in chapter 5 about the righteousness of God. You won't get it. You cannot be weaned off of self-righteousness. There has to be a divorce. It's like Lewis talks about the great divorce. He talks about it in philosophical terms of a divorce between good and evil. That's not a biblical paradigm. The great divorce in scripture is between the human being and his ego. And the way the divorce takes place is in death where you are sown a perishable body that is raised imperishable. That is the barrier, the wedge that Paul is driving so that you can finally be ripped from your self-righteousness. And the hope of scripture is that before you die, God can work some measure of a miracle in you by ripping you away from your self-righteousness. So it is a painful, uncomfortable, difficult thing because we all want to coddle and be coddled. But we all know that when you coddle someone, you are grooming the next Hitler. There's no way around it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Again, he's reminding them. I'm coming to you as one who knows the instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and instruction. He knows the instruction. That is his value in this situation. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, meaning we're trying to convince you for your sake of the fear of the Lord. But we are made manifest to God, meaning, as he said previously, everything we do is before God. God sees everything. God is my judge. It's important, again, hearing 2 Corinthians, not to imagine that Paul is laying his case before the people so they can judge him. This is Paul. The opinion of the assembly is immaterial. It does not matter. If you tell me great sermon, I ignore you. If you tell me terrible sermon, I ignore you. If you come to me and say, I question this translation of the Greek, then we have something to talk about. But I don't need your praise or your criticism. I'm only interested in what God has to say. That's how Paul talks. So he's saying, I'm interested in being naked before God. And I hope. And when he hopes, he's not hoping for his own sake. He's hoping for your sake. 
I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences, meaning, look, for your sake, I hope you get the message. I'm already good with God, so I don't care what you say. And don't forget, everyone, that this is about Paul's actions. Paul has been very clear, and he's not going to stop focusing on the actions. He is made manifest to God. How? Because God sees that he's suffering. And God knows that this is on behalf of the law, on behalf of the teaching. And he's hoping that the people will see that it's fear of the Lord, it's wisdom that led him into this situation. So they can learn about the law. This is the ultimate manifestation of the law, the suffering that goes along with it. And so now that you see my actions, all the conferences that you've been having, wondering about my motivations, wondering why I decide, wondering how, look at my actions. My actions are manifesting the teaching. And I'm hoping that you're learning a little bit from this because that's one of the fringe benefits of me going through this is then I can teach you. We'll see if I actually am teaching you Are you manifesting the law in your life? Are you manifesting this submission to Torah and thereby submitting to neighbor so that we can see the law is there, we can see that I'm not wasting my time on you? I'm doing it because the Lord commanded me. I can offer you the teaching, but I can't make you learn. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you. I'm not looking to you for approval. I don't need anything from you but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, meaning you should be proud of me for your sake. And this is how a real parent talks. If you need something from your children, if you need your children's love, if you need their appreciation, you're an abuser. If you need to have a relationship with your kids, if you need your kids around you because you're lonely when you're older, you're an abuser. I don't need my children, and I will never acquiesce to this way of speaking. I love my children, which means I do what needs to be done for their sake, but I don't need anything from them. It is akin to this ethical principle in Western society about doctor-patient relationships and the doctor-patient boundaries and so forth. A doctor can't have a relationship with their patient because the doctor has power. So if you have power over someone, how can you then try to have a relationship with them? It's manipulation. So Paul is making it very clear, I want nothing from you. I want you to be proud for your sake, because if you are proud of us, that means that you've come to understand what is worthy of pride in this life. Do you think I need anything from you? That's why, as a teacher, as a priest, you have to insist upon the honor of the Pharisee. And this kills people. Oh, Father Mark, you just want a broad phylactery and to walk through the marketplaces and have everyone call you Father. Yes, I do. Because that means, A, either you'll think I'm a hypocrite and then you won't worship me the way you want to worship your religious leaders, or B, maybe you'll figure out what I'm preaching and you will show the honor that is due the gospel despite the fact that you can't bear to see the way I'm acting. That's the trick. Remember, scripture was written by Pharisees. It's profoundly self-righteous to use the expression Pharisaism. Because on what basis do you judge the Pharisee? You think you're better than the Pharisee, and that's why you're condemned when you read the parable. Are you kidding me? You talk about the publican and the Pharisee as though you're on the side of the publican, but the publican was rotten. Do you think the publican was better than the Pharisee? Is that what you take from the story? Then you're ignorant of the word of God. And we're going to see how Paul talks about righteousness in chapter 5. An occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. 
there are people evidently who think that if Paul is being mistreated, then it's because he's a bad guy. And because we know the good guys are the ones at the Davos World Economic Forum. We know that they're the ones who are the chairman of the boards. We know that they're the ones who sit in the chairs of high honor that no one can touch. And Paul, obviously, it's the opposite because everyone can touch him. Everyone can abuse him. Everyone can mistreat him. How could you then, in any kind of self-respect, follow a guy like that who's being mistreated that way? And he said, look, I'm telling you why I'm being mistreated is because I will never waver from the teaching. If you want to have these discussions with people who take pride in appearance and not in heart, meaning in what they understand and their wisdom, they'd rather follow someone in a shiny suit with a nice tan and well-cut hair than someone who actually knows something and has some wisdom and acts correctly according to the teaching. Paul is at least offering you something where the others don't. Because if you really believe you're not a Pharisee, then you have missed the point of scripture. In fact, you'd be so lucky as to be a Pharisee because the Pharisee knows scripture and you don't. This is what people can't get through their thick skulls. You aren't important enough for scripture to criticize you. You have to listen to scripture, criticize the authors, and live off the bread that falls from that table. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So if we look amazing or crazy, it's because we're doing the will of God. And we want God to recognize our actions. But if I'm of sound mind, if I can explain to you why this is happening, this is for your sake. So the actions are really for God. The explanation is for you. I don't need to explain myself to God. God knows my heart, meaning my brain. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. The love of Christ, and it's not love as in the cuddly, warm feelings, the love and respect, you know, you imagine the love of a soldier for one of his fellow soldiers. I hate your guts, but I will die for you. The love of Christ controls us, meaning I am only functioning as one who will not waver from this teaching no matter what. I will not betray the one who gave me this teaching. Christ died and showed that even if one is condemned by the law and ends up in the land of the dead in Sheol, God can always reverse that decision and bring you from Sheol and put you at the right hand of glory. Now, he's only going to put Christ at the right hand of glory, so don't get too excited. But he can reconstitute those who have died. He can bring from the dead those who have died. And so one died for all, therefore all died means be dead to this world. It's not going to give you anything. That's the great divorce that I'm talking about. Christ was crucified. You have not been crucified, but you can live as someone who's been crucified. You can benefit from the wisdom of Christ's sacrifice and be wise now. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. That's the wedge. That's the splinter. That's the barrier that God is driving in order to split you, to rip you from your mother that you cleave to, which is your self-righteousness, so that you can live according to God's will. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf, you live for the will of God 
which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the content of the gospel. When are we living for ourselves? We're living for ourselves when we need me time. We're living for ourselves when we need alone time. We're living for ourselves when we need to do this for ourselves. We're living for ourselves when we're avoiding this or avoiding that because we don't like it, because it's inconvenient. It's accepting all the inconveniences and hard work that it takes for the sake of others putting our others' needs higher than ours. It's really that simple. Why do we have weak communities? Because men get tired from work and they come home and they're exhausted and they don't have any more energy to work for the sake of the community. But guess what? The community needs the work. So even if you're tired, it's time to get up and go and help. Why do we devalue people who are engaged in childcare, people who choose to stay home of any gender, and value people who go to work and spend all their energy on something other than community because we love money more than we love God and we are all guilty of it. The problem in our communities is the love of money. Why do two parents have to work? We can comfort ourselves with our ideology about equality, but this isn't about gender, it's about greed. It, Why have we created a system where you need two incomes? It's even deeper. It's the need for comfort. Why is it that in my community, neighbors do not talk to each other? Because of the discomfort of having to knock on the door of the person you may or may not get along with, who is coming home from work and doesn't want to talk to anybody, and now you've interrupted their evening TV watching session. You've interrupted their Netflix. And your desire to move away from discomfort is not necessarily their desire. They want to stay comfortable. Paul's saying, I'm not interested in your comfort. <laughs> Go and knock on the door. Yeah. And if he has a problem with it, that's his problem. But you can't be let off the hook because it's uncomfortable for you. Paul has been trying to show us that discomfort is part of following the law. You can't get away from it. And so live as someone whose comfort is already at an end. Once you graduated from high school, there's no more comfort for you. Just be resolved to that. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him in this way no longer. Meaning, if you recognize Paul, and if you are proud of Paul in the way that Paul is preaching here, you are not proud of Paul in the flesh but of the fear of the Lord that Paul is conveying to you. That is our boasting. He's not even talking about Paul now. He's talking about Jesus. You want to be proud that Jesus was in your town or that you speak the language of Jesus or you're from the same part of the world as Jesus, that he's in your tribe? What are you talking about? He didn't die for your tribe. He didn't die for a fleshly context or camp or group or segment. He died for everybody. So what is it that you want from Christ in the flesh? You want Christ in the flesh because he's awesome, because he's correct, because he's right, because he shows everyone how they're wrong. That's how you love him in the flesh. But the way you actually love him in the spirit is when his spirit of brokenness and crucifixion guides your own actions so that you're no longer functioning according to your own comfort, but functioning according to the law that leads you to this terrible discomfort. Look, Jesus was executed. And he is unlike any martyr that human beings appreciate because he achieved nothing for his people in worldly terms. He was not vindicated in worldly terms. And his vindication is not visible in worldly terms. So by all accounts, Jesus died a loser. And he had to die a loser 
so that you would no longer, as Paul says, recognize Jesus according to the flesh. You want a fleshly Messiah. That is your sin. And that is more a Christian sin today than it ever was a sin for the biblical Israel. We have actualized the literary sin of the biblical Israel in contemporary Christian history because of the way we have adulterated the Bible and the way we've twisted the Bible to serve our psychological and emotional needs or our material needs, whether it's prosperity gospel or liberal coddling gospel, it's all from the devil because it is an obstacle to this teaching. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, something different than the flesh that you cling to. You are sown a perishable body and raised imperishable. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. There is a possibility to live without being selfish, despite your selfishness. In other words, the commandment of God will make you unselfish in your actions, but you are still selfish. Are you kidding me? If the Pharisees, who wrote down the will of God in the New Testament for the sake of the Gentiles, are condemned by that will, you're going to tell me that you're going to go on a spiritual journey during Lent and be transformed? We're getting to the heart of the matter, Richard, about what biblical righteousness is all about, what grace is all about. The new creature is no longer concerned with taking care of itself. When you get tired and you want to go to bed and your child needs you, you get up and take care of your child. This is how it's supposed to be, not just with your child, but with your enemy. If your enemy needs something, you get out of bed and you go and help your enemy. And if your enemy then abuses you for doing that, you thank God for the opportunity to follow his law, and then maybe you'll have an opportunity to go back to bed. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So God is the one who is providing the hope, providing the reconciliation, ultimately the garment of righteousness. You can't do it. You have to, but you can't. I really want to stress this. This is so difficult. That's why you had a Protestant Reformation. And everyone today gets it wrong because we're still trapped in that argument. You have to do the commandments of God, but you are incapable of doing them. The prophets try to convey to the people that they have a terminal illness, a chronic illness, and that's rebellion. No matter what they do, it's going to be self-serving and they're going to move away from God. No matter what. Even at the end of Hosea, God tries to give them the words that they're supposed to say. Okay, when this happens, say, we're not going to serve any other gods. Okay, repeat after me. We're not going to... I mean, it's almost spelled out that clearly. And so the sickness that the people have is this rebellion because they just can't bring themselves to cleave to God and to be completely faithful in all things to God. The thing that happens at the crucifixion is say, okay... Let's just suppose that there is somebody who does exactly what they're supposed to do. What is it going to look like? Maybe you guys need me to draw you a picture, okay? Let's do a proof of concept. Let's, That's let's how we that. talk in IT. We're going to do a proof of concept. I'm going to send my son. This is what it's going to look like. So you have the teaching. That was enough. You can get there if you follow the teaching. But let me just give you an extra illustration. Put yourself in this position of being crucified on a cross. You know you're on your way. You know you're getting it right. You know, you've got diabetes, 
and it's chronic disease and I'm gonna give you a prescription on insulin, how to take insulin. You're not getting it. You keep coming back to me and your blood sugar is still terrible. Give me the needle. Nurse, come here. Nurse, I'm gonna give the shot so this lunkhead can figure out how to give himself the shot, okay? So here's how you do the shot. Now do you understand? Whatever you thought was correct before, whatever you thought was gonna help you before, please forget that and just do what I did here. Thank you, nurse, so much for being willing to let me give you a shot for no reason, even though you didn't need it. But this guy needed me to show how to do this thing. So Jesus went to show you how to do this thing, but he's the Messiah. You are nobody. So look how it turned out for this guy. What do you expect to accomplish? Do you think you can best Jesus? So by showing us this outcome, which is the destruction of self-righteousness, Jesus gave you a shortcut. So when he talks about not counting their trespasses, he's saying, look, we saw how the proof of concept turned out. We see what the purpose of the law is. God is willing to forgive you the shortcomings that Jesus does not have if you're only willing to cleave to what he gives you, which is the wisdom to live now as though you were crucified. That's the opportunity you have. Until you're crucified, you have no right to open your mouth, but you can live now as though you're already crucified. That's the challenge. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Again, he's reiterating, I'm coming to you with the fear of God, which is what I'm teaching you. And when you talk to Paul, it's as though God were making an appeal through us. It's as though you're talking directly to God. That's what he's saying here. We beg you then on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I am begging you, stop being self-righteous. Get off your throne. Submit to the fear of God. Acknowledge that everything comes from God so that you benefit from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ instead of just going to your death to no end. Just as Christ did not die for his own sake, but for ours, I am suffering not for my own sake, but for yours. I am doing this on behalf of Christ so that you can perhaps learn. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus was condemned. Jesus, who followed the will of God without exception, you always break from the will of God. How can you expect to do better than Jesus? So if I'm offering you God's offer, which only a fool would refuse, the opportunity to receive the gift of life, even though you have completely rebelled against God, knowing full well, at least you should know full well, that if the outcome for Jesus was crucifixion and he knew no sin, how could you expect to achieve anything other than death? This is the deal that's being offered so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So righteousness is declared by a judge. A judge says this person is righteous or unrighteous. God is the judge. He can decide. And so even though God allowed Jesus to be condemned by the law by being cursed and hanging on the tree, he said, you know what? I think he's righteous and I'm the judge. And so even though he was condemned to death outside of the land of the living, I'm going to bring him to the eternal heavens and he's going to sit at my right hand. So rather than being condemned to death, I'm going to reverse the decision and place him at my right hand. Permanently, 
to make him stand out, which is what Paul was saying about himself earlier, that he stands out. Just as Jesus is made to stand out by God in the resurrection, Paul is claiming earlier that he is also made to stand out for the sake of the people to be stood up, to stand out, to exist as a permanent teaching example so that people would have a light to guide their way on the path. Have a great week, Richard. Thank you, Father. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.